everyone and welcome to another Scotsway podcast and today I'm delighted to be joined once again by Graham McRae Burnett. Hello Graham. Hello Alistair, lovely to be here again. And we're here to talk about your latest novel, um, Case Study. So how do you describe Case Study when folk like me ask you about it? Uh, well, I'm just kind of learning to describe it, Alistair, because I mean, the book comes out next week, so um, I haven't really got my elevator pitch, you know, honed yet. But what I say when somebody asks me what it's about is that it's a novel about a young woman in 1965 in London who believes that a radical psychotherapist called Collins Braithwaite, um, a quite monstrous character who I'm sure we'll talk more about. Absolutely. She believes that he has driven her sister Veronica to suicide. And uh, in order to sort of investigate this, she does what any normal person would do under the circumstances and presents herself as a client to Collins Braithwaite um, using an assumed name to disguise her identity. So um, from that premise, you know, kind of the, 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 the narrative of the book unfolds. Um, the book is told um, mainly in the form of five notebooks written by this young woman which have very fortunately been sent to me. Yes. Um, and interspersed with those five notebooks is a kind of biographical, biographical material about Collins Braithwaite, which I've written. Um, so, you know, the book alternates between these two sections, but it's mainly the notebooks of the, the young women. I mean, there are other texts in there. We might talk a uh-huh. bit about those as well. But it does start out with you um, getting these notebooks. You visit, you know, Voltaire and Rousseau and you discover Collins Braithwaite's book. And, and you know, there's a lot of uh, a different sources throughout as well as these notebooks. Yeah, I mean, well, I suppose um, the, the main source, perhaps, you're mentioning is that within the first of the notebooks, we then have a chapter of Collins Braithwaite's yeah. own book, which was called Untherapy. And this was a book that Collins Braithwaite wrote in the mid-60s, a book of case studies. Um, and uh, my character um, has read Collins Braithwaite's book and um, believes that one of the cases in question is her sister Veronica, under the guise, disguised as Dorothy yeah. in, the, in, the, in Braithwaite's own account of this uh, series of psychotherapeutic sessions. Um, so yeah, there are other texts, and um, but yeah, I, I don't know if there are, and there's obviously my own introduction yeah. to how the notebooks were sent to me, um, which um, perhaps has something in common with my previous novel, His Bloody Project. Um, yeah. So before we go into the details of the character, why did you want to write this book? Where did the kind of initial idea yeah. come from? I, I think the initial idea for the book came from, you know, quite a long period off and on of reading psychiatric case studies. There's a book just behind you called The 50 Minute Hour. And this was a 1950s or 60s absolute bestseller right. uh, written by a psychoanalyst of the time called Robert, Robert Lindner. And, um, you know, it sold millions of copies. And I came across that book when I was probably a teenager or in my early 20s. Right. And, you know, there's, there's a fascination with that kind of material. It, it's presented quite salaciously, murderers, sadists, you know. And, you know, there's a voyeuristic pleasure in reading this kind of material about people who suffer from, uh, you know, quite uh, severe mental disturbances. And, um, you know, there's... These case studies tend to be chosen because they are um, unusual. Yeah. You know, they're not sort of everyday sort of anxiety or depression. Um, so, but as, as I read as I read more case studies over the years, I became more and more suspicious of the nature of the, the presentation of this material. That rather than seeing it as being nu- neutrally presented as being objective or even as some. Uh, psychiatrists or psychoanalysts would present the material as, you know, scientific. Yeah. Um, I began to think of these encounters or the accounts of these encounters as being, for one thing, extremely subjective. We only get the account of the therapist. Yeah. Um, and the, the therapist selects the material that he or she thinks is relevant, and then they then interpret the material. 
uh, in some cases they even augment the material um, mm. you know in, 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 in Freud's famous case Dora he actually is rather dismissive of the account of the tra traumatic event in question that Dora his client has given him and adds details to it which he's completely open about yeah. Um, and then uses those details which he has invented as the basis for his analysis. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-blowingly shocking. So I, I suddenly saw that these encounters were not being presented just as, as facts. And um, I, I became more and more curious about how would, they, um, how, would, how would they appear if these accounts had been written by the person on the other side of the room, um, i.e. the client or the patient. And so I kind of sought out um, where I could accounts mm -hmm. written by patients. Um, the most most no notable of those, perhaps, um, R. D. Lang is a character. We may talk more about R. D. Lang yes. later. Um, but R. D. Lang's most famous patient was a woman called Mary Barnes, and uh, she wrote an account of her experiences in Kingsley Hall, which right. was R. D. Lang's therapeutic community. And so that's absolute gold dust. You know, yeah. for big, you know, because this was the direction that I really wanted to, of research at this point. You know, I wanted to find this kind of material, and you know, there was there's another book uh, called The Inner World of Mental Illness, which is mentioned in a footnote in one of R. D. Lang's books. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the wonderful thing about the internet is you can actually go and find those really obscure texts. You know, uh, so I was very interested, especially reading accounts from the sort of 50s and 60s, which is when the book set. So it was really the origin, the, the genesis of the book was really in becoming more and more fascinated in the dynamics of that relationship. So not reading case studies as sort of scientific documents, but reading them in a much more novelistic kind of way. It's like an encounter between two people and deconstructing that the idea that the therapist is more sane than yeah. the client, which when you read some of Freud's stuff, you really start to question. But in a way, it's the telling of the same story from mm. two different points of view. Absolutely, absolutely. And mm. it took because when I read the book, I thought, yeah, there's a lot of research going in there, but I didn't think that that was the direction it was going. So how difficult was it to find such accounts of patient-written... Um, um, well, I mean, it's one of the things, once you start looking, you know, you can't find them. And um, they're not... I think it's probably much more commonplace nowadays for people who've been in therapy to write about their therapeutic experience. I, I suppose I was more interested in historical accounts, mid 20th century accounts, they say, and they're probably fewer and further between. Um, but even uh, even a couple of, I mean, the Wolfman, the so-called Wolfman, which uh, was another Freud's client's patient, um, and he wrote a 300 page account of his own life mm -hmm. um, which is of course fascinating um, the most fascinating thing about it is that um, Freud bases his entire analysis of the Wolfman uh, who's actually a Russian aristocrat called Sergei Pankev right um, uh, he, Freud bases his analysis of this little boy as he was at the time on a, a single dream that Pankev had of some wolves or dogs in a tree outside his window um, and this uh, event is of such great importance to Sergei Pankev that in the 300 pages he never mentions it. You know, and so that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, but for, see, this is what I mean about you know the selection of material as being important. Probably it was important to this eight-year-old boy. I think he was at the time, but um, you know he becomes branded as the the Wolfman, a very dehumanizing label. Yeah. You know, yeah, I always imagined before I read the Wolfman that. You know, he was somebody who was maybe barked at the moon and, um, you know, went out in a lycanthropic way. Is that yes, the word? I think it is. Yeah. Um, I've, never, I've never managed to use that in a sentence before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's just, um, it's really fascinating to, to read. If, what, was, what was it like to be in the room with Freud, you know? Yeah. What was it like to be in the room with, with R.D. Lang, you know, um, you know, or, you know, I guess that's true. I hadn't thought about that either. In that, yes, it's the it's the same story being told two different ways, but mm. it's also 
for once the the patient reflecting on their doctor, which is a rare thing to eat, to yeah, read about as well. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, and uh, Lang Lang was not really um, so heavily involved in Mary Barnes's therapy, but she was living in this community that he'd founded. So when he came in, he was clearly the sort of very charismatic figure. You know, very, you know, people would go, oh, Ronnie's in, you know. And, uh, you know, he was he was a very, very um, prominent figure in the sort of counterculture at the time. Celebrities visited him. You know, famously, Sean Connery came to Kingsley Hall. Right. And uh, R.D. Lang challenged him to a wrestling match. You know, it's a, it's a typical, typical Glaswegian response to... Um, James Bond coming around. It's like, I'll, I'll wrestle you, pal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they actually wrestled. I need to check that out. But I mean, what a great, um, what a great image, you know. And uh, I think, um, I think Lang tried to persuade uh, Sean Connery to take some LSD with him, but um, Connery apparently declined. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, the thing about that time as well was um, you psychiatric, psychiatry, psychotherapy, mm. but. There was also the counterculture of drugs beginning to come in as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with the LSD thing, one of the reasons I think that Lang has, has been kind of decried um, retrospectively, partly because some of his later work is quite odd and he, he did go down some weird directions. But I think people hear the, the, the letters LSD and they kind of clutch the pearls. Um, if, if LSD was known by its proper name, which I can't off the top of my head, like, Lysergic acid or yes, something. Yes, or something like that. Um, you know, people go, oh, I don't know what that is. It's yeah. just a, it's just a, dr- a drug, and it may have therapeutic value. And as f- from what I've read um, of R. D. Lang's uh, use of LSD with his clients was that he used it in a very professional medical way. Yeah. He wasn't tripping. He wasn't what? going <laughs> tripping with his clients. And you know, you know, Lang was trying to find ways to treat clients, which were not did not include putting electricity in their heads yeah. to use a phrase that he uses yeah. and you know so to use a drug which we now have neg- generally speaking of negative associations with was not necessarily as outrageous as it now seems um, because we liked so, so the whole thing of like the mixture of the counterculture and the drug scene and psychotherapy um, it's true but um, I don't think I think Lang's use of LSD was perhaps not as scandalous as you know people might assume just because of these confluence of those two things you know yeah because I think often the the connotations that he had he's put in with mm. a lot of writers and poets and you yeah. know other people who it was very much a kind of you know opening the senses of whatever oh. it might be yeah yes yeah the Ginsburgs and the Burroughs and the um you know what's the Tony uh, Timothy Leary and stuff, yeah, and yeah. I think you know probably he did um, encounter these people. And Trocky as well, wasn't he? Trocky, oh, Trocky. He he liked a bit of uh, liked a bit of heroin, didn't he? He did. Yeah, he did. But uh, so for young, for, the, for yeah. those who don't know, I think uh-huh. you're quite good because R D Lang does kind mm. of cast a shadow, and he does yes, appear yeah. in the book at yes, least, you is. know, mentioned in the book mm. over it. So he was this really well known character. Um, so, what? And it, what was his book? The Divided Self was mm. his kind of bestseller, yes. if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what? In, what kind of interested you about him as a character and as his, with his work? Well, I mean, I, I I read The Divided Self in preparation for reading writing the book quite deliberately, and um, I found it to be. I mean, I think I'd, I'd owned a copy since I was a student. I don't know if I'd ever actually read it or finished it, um, but in reading it now as a man of 50 years old or whatever I found it to be a you know, really stunning and electrifying piece of work mm-hmm. um, it's a book I don't read books on psychology or psychiatry because I'm interested in theories of you know um, theoretical positions on mental illness or whatever I read them because I want to recognise something about myself or understand something about myself um, so when I read The Divided Self that is a book that absolutely speaks to me yeah. um, and it speaks to ways in which I've behaved over the years uh, I relate to the sort of some of the key concepts in the book 
two the two key concepts for me are um, he talks about a system or uh, people who are in difficulty living uh, a kind of system of false selves mm -hmm. and these false selves perhaps taking over from the true self this is a contradiction with our a question that is kind of examined a little bit in my book um, but you know and this this idea of false selves is to me only an idea that we behave in different ways depending on the context in which we're in so here I am talking to you as a as a writer yeah. and I present myself in a certain way I'm, I'm going out for dinner with my parents later I won't speak in the same way to them you know because it's a different kind of conversation uh, but I think when you're younger you behave differently when you're with your pals at school as you do when you're at home and you know so when these two personas come into uh, conflict mm -hmm. you know you sometimes you don't know how to behave and that can be quite uh, problematic you know yeah, and I think for some people maybe those different personas become more exaggerated and then when they come into contact it becomes more and more problematic or the the, the persona becomes the person yeah. you know so that, that, all that kind of stuff, I, I really relate to that. And, uh, you know, when I was writing, when I was reading The Divided Self, I was reflecting on my first novel, The Disappearance of Adele Badeau. Mm -hmm. And I felt like my, the, the main character in that book, Manfred Bauman, if I had set out to write a character based on what R.D. Lang describes in The Divided Self, it would have been Manfred Bauman. He conforms to all the, all the sort of key concepts. The other key concept for me in, in The Divide Self is the idea of a sort of feeling of hyper self-consciousness mm -hmm. where you believe that your every act um, and most minute pieces of behaviour is being analysed by everybody around you, being noticed and this, may, this causes you almost to just seize up as a person because yeah. the pressure on how to behave is... Um, exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting and again this is Manfred Bauman absolutely overthinking his every action when he when he changes his lunch order yeah. he thinks everyone in the kitchen is going to be like running around going oh my god Manfred Bauman changed his order uh, but of course nobody's paying any attention so these are things that I, I sort of relate to and um, I think you know the character the protagonist in case study also exhibits some of these behaviours especially these ideas about the, the false selves you know everybody almost in the book kind of has two different kind of personas which are more or less to some extent in conflict or yeah. one is an exaggeration and the other so yeah that so Lang Lang's writing actually you know I really really rate um, or at least the early work um, and uh, you know I also I also you know his, he totally deconstructs the idea that the the therapist is more sane than the than the client and you know he he treated um, what what he would call uh, you know people's delusions as having a truth for the client themselves and not just to be dismissed. So he, he tried to engage in a therapeutic way rather than just diagnose. And I, I think that's very exciting and very modern. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know I'm I'm in a way surprised that he it doesn't have a more prominent position in the sort of history. Of moving towards different modes of counselling that we might see today, not not that I'm in any way an expert in that. So yeah, he he looms very large over the book. Yeah. I, you do wonder, and this kind of ties in with your character of Collins Braithwaite. You do wonder if the reason that his um, influence isn't perhaps as great hmm. today is because his. Um, fame or even kind of infamy yeah. is a perhaps a better way of putting it became so great uh, no I, I think that for me there's no question that that's the case with Lang um, he there was there was the, the sort of dabbling with LSD um, and he was later in the early 70s I think arrested for possession of LSD LSD was not illegal yeah. in the 60s um, but he was I, I think arrested but not charged for supplying but he also, he started to get into a lot of sort of rebirthing stuff and what we might think of as much more new age kind of hippie stuff, which personally, in my, it doesn't interest me. Um, and, I, he, you know, he had a massive alcohol problem. Mm. And I think he, you know, in his latter part of his career, 
you know, he often perhaps may, was not functioning at his best. Yes. I mean, we've all been guilty of that, you know. <laughs> um, it's, all, it's okay if you're a writer, but I think his reputation has suffered because of those things. Yeah. Um, so we've got, to, to, let's go to the, the two <laughs> central characters then. You've yeah. got the um, psychiatrist Collins Braithwaite, mm. who got this idea of creating the self that you're talking about mm. and being, he definitely seems to create his own mythology as he yeah, goes through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Collins Braithwaite is born Arthur, Arthur Collins Braithwaite, and he, he comes from Darlington. His father is an ironmonger. He was born in 1925. And, uh, you know, his father is very sort of bluff, um, Northern English, you know, working man who's done well. Um, and Collins Braithwaite or Arthur Braithwaite, you know, rebels very much against him. He he's a he's a bright boy who gets a scholarship to yeah. Oxford. In common with you know a, quite a lot of the characters of that era in British culture, um, you know, the era, the beginnings of the angry young men who yeah. are very often grammar school educated um, and got scholarships to you know, prestigious universities. So uh, uh, Collins Braithwaite goes off to Oxford to study philosophy, p very possibly mere, only because this is the thing that would most annoy his father, um, <laughs> you know, who's a, a bluff County Durham man. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, he, 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 really, he later studies psychology and yeah, gets a PhD and becomes a psychotherapist, sort of semi-accidentally. Um, yeah. Uh, where are we going with it? Well, I just want yeah. to know about the character himself yeah. because he creates his yeah. own character. Yes. Did you say yes. he starts yeah. out as Arthur That's from the right, North? Yeah. Yes. He embraces aspects yeah. of that. Yes. There's no doubt yeah. about yeah. it, yeah. but he also kind of yeah. changes he, things. Yeah, he, re he reinvents himself yeah. as Collins Braithwaite, and Collins Braithwaite is almost self consciously a character that he creates, and um, it allows him to sort of shed some of his sort of northern bluffness and take part in this London scene. He, he writes a book um, which is almost a sort of direct riposte to uh, Lang's um, Divided Self, in which yeah. he criticises Lang. And uh, through an encounter with Dirk Bogart, yeah. um, finds himself becoming a, uh, a sort of therapist to you know s s actors and theatre people and celebrities. And he is, you know, he he takes on the mantle of being more radical than Lang. So yeah. Lang, of course, hates him because he's stolen his thunder as the enfant terrible of, uh, you know, psychotherapy in London in the 60s. And there's, you know, there's walk-on parts for quite a few um, characters of the era. But, you know, I like to mesh the character into into the, the sort of real, onto a canvas that we know already exists, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, I think you know that creates a sort of um, reality to what's going on. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah. And you know, you, you spoke about uh, it being in the fifties and sixties and the angry young men. You do mention look back in anger, mm -hmm. and you do mention mm -hmm. Colin Wilson's book, which mm -hmm. is yeah, the outsiders. The outsiders. Yeah. You know, yeah. is that a time that really fascinates you? Um, or it yes, just oh, yes, it is. I mean, it, it's. Uh, I think that period in post-war. British culture was tremendously exciting and it, you know we talk about the angry young men and they were aside from Sheila, Sheila Delaney yeah. men um, but there was a kind of overthrowing of the old guard which I think is quite genuine that these were these were not Eton Harrow educated young men they were from the north of England um, they were sometimes Colin Wilson a tremendously self-regarding and uh, eccentric character yeah. and yeah but he was entirely self-educated he hadn't been to, to university he allegedly wrote this book the outsider the outsiders you know while sleeping rough in Hampstead Heath I suspect there's a bit of mythology around that but um, you know it, there was a week in 1956 when this book which took uh, the sort of literary world of you know, London by storm mm -hmm. came out in the same week as John Osborne's play, Look Back in Anger, you know, was premiered. So, and that, that's when the term, you know, angry young men was, was coined. There are different versions of who 
coined the term, yeah. but apparently it was the Daily Express. If you um, believe that, I don't, I can't say, but um, yeah. So that yeah, that time was fascinating. Then it moves into the sixties, and I think the sixties. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing original to say that the 60s was an exciting period in you know, British filmmaking and British writing. But what, I mean, what in a way interested me um, was that, you know, I think it's important to recognise that the 60s was swinging for a very small number of yeah. people. The vast majority of people, even in London, still lived uh, lives of post-war austerity and social attitudes were still not as progressive as they would have been for this sort of cultural elite for want of a better word um, and my my character the protagonist of the book The Young Woman you know she is a woman of the 50s yeah, very you know, much so. and she is sexually repressed and um, is in no way uh, sort of has the social attitudes that we associate with the time and um, so she she brings, she comes into con sort of uh, contact with the world of Collins Braithwaite. Um, maybe, uh, you know, I, yeah, I suppose that's, I, I find that amusing. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. well, his, you talk about mythology there, and he mm. does create this mythology. And yeah. also, he's clearly a charismatic mm -hmm. person, mm. but yet a pretty terrible person as well, particularly a lot of his dealings with women. Oh, he's a monster. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was, you know, there, there's a section in the book where it's with his time at Oxford University when he's a little bit older than, um, you know, most of the students yeah. and he's, you know, he's lived in France and stuff and he's a bit, he's much more worldly and he is, he is, he is absolutely charismatic mm. and he has his acolytes and he uses his power over people um, in a pretty unpleasant way. I mean, there are a couple of little, little stories about him mm -hmm. in the book, which, you know, I'm like, that is, you know, he's, this is not a, a, a guy you want to hang out with at all, as you say, particularly in his dealings with women. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's a monster. And, you know, it's quite, you know, exciting writing that kind of character. Is um, it exciting... Is it surprising writing a character like that? There are a couple of things that I wrote. I was like, uh, "Can I write this?" <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's like I'm like, it's so unpleasant. He's behaving so unpleasantly, but you know, it's it's also interesting when you know the book's been read by people of an age who have lived through that and they they recognise those behaviours. Yeah, and um, uh, both from men and from women. Um, and, you know, obviously, I'm somebody who likes to do my research as well. You know, aside from the sort of research we were talking about before, about sort of uh, the psychiatric or psychotherapeutic relationships, you know, I like to read sort of social history of the time. And, um, you know, uh, I, hopefully the what I describe in the way Collins Braithwaite uh, behaves has got some basis in, you know, the general behaviour of men at the yeah. time. Um, and to go down to what you were saying about the young woman, hmm. um, you're absolutely right, because her, she still lives at home with her yeah. father, and, <laughs> yes. and, you know, it's very much, hmm. it's trying to fit into the role that she believes she has to fit into, and then that... Yeah, you know, I, I think, think I don't spoil anything. But yeah, you know. well, I think she probably she's she's not unaware that she is supposed to want to be uh, a young independent woman. This yeah. is the phrase that comes up, and that's a phrase I got from reading women's magazines at the time. You know, um, but she's terrified of independence. She doesn't want to be independent. She wants to stay at home and look after her daddy yeah. because it's safe. Because she's but that's a, that's her defense mechanism. I would say from her own insecurities and her fears about the world and she does she does get a job and she she works as a receptionist in a theatrical agency um which i don't know why i'm laughing at well i do because there's some excellent uh, <laughs> this idea of taking clearly uh, you know at least to begin with this innocent woman and sticking mm. her in the middle of Soho yeah. at that time yeah, or something yeah yeah but it's not it's not it's not raunchy in no, that no, way no, but no, i mean no. uh 
Um, but it was like one of these things, you know, that when you, as you're writing or as I'm writing, you know, I just write and like, all right, she's going to apply. She needs to get a job, you know. So, and then she gets a job, and then for for no reason, no conscious reason, uh, she gets a job at a theatrical agency. And of course, I realised later that this kind of chimes with the other that she's dealing constantly with people who are presenting themselves in a way that is other to themselves. Yeah, and, um, you know, so there's all these little synergies, I suppose, that come in when you're, you're writing. I suppose you just reflect your own preoccupations to some extent. But it, I love it when a sort of coincidence like that uh, turns up. Uh, but, yeah, she's... Um, she, she is sort of in conflict with the expectations that were beginning to arise from the early 60s for women to become more more independent and to you know aspire to um be more than just the husband the, the the sort of accessory to their husband um and for her uh, when a uh, world's collide well, mm. that's not exactly what you say but you know when when mm. the different um, selves, if you like, that mm. need to be created, at least she believes so, Clyde, then that's when things start to be complicated for her. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, yeah, when she goes to see Collins Braithwaite for the first time, she realises she can't be herself because she, uh, she would immediately, Collins Braithwaite would immediately know that she's the sister of her, his previous client, you know, Veronica. Um, so she creates this um, persona for herself called Rebecca Smith. With a Y. With a Y. Smith with a Y, of course. (laughs) And um, Rebecca is, to some extent, you know, everything that she's not. Um, She's kind of self-confident and um, she's she's, she's somehow better looking. Um, And, uh, you know, the the very, you know, it's it's not given too much away. The first time she's going to see Collins Braithwaite, she asks a young man for directions to his office. And they fall into step. And uh, she's sort of trying out her new persona. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as she, so Rebecca, of course, much more flirtatious than she would ever be. And you know, she says to herself, it was quite a lark being Rebecca. And uh, so she, there's an enjoyment. She, she begins to have this enjoyment of being this other character. And you know, it affords her some freedoms that she wouldn't feel herself. And I think that, you know, maybe you're alluding to leads to some sort of conflict between herself and the character of Rebecca Smith um, and who she prefers to be. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, you know, she once she sets up, you know, the Rebecca Smith character with this guy, Tom, or whatever his name yes. is, yeah. um, you know, she can't, she can't say, oh, actually, I'm not really Rebecca Smith. You know, she has to keep it up. And I think sometimes, you know, people have, um, you know, that's a situation that you could find yourself in in real life. Oh, and you know, I, quite, I know people uh, you know, who have done, you know, giving away any names. Well, I mean, you could, you could, in a sort of simple level, like be at a party and some, somebody's talking about Finnegan's Wake and you don't admit that you haven't read it. Yeah. And then later on, you're in the same conversation. You have to keep up the idea that you're somebody who read Finnegan's Wake. Um and I can imagine that with my sort of overthinking novelist brain becoming the plot of a whole novel. I say that as a person who's never read Finnegan's Wake. Um, um, so yeah, sometimes you know we get we find ourselves caught in a lie. Yes, know? yes. Um, I mean, and again, that goes back to you know Manfred Bauman. He lies about something, and then he has to keep up the story that he's in. And I mean, you know, he's a character who. It's actually created a persona for himself, and it's crippled him. Um, uh, so you know, it's funny looking back over um, other things you've written and seeing the relevance uh, of sort of or the, a little, a little sort of um, thread of ideas going through different things you've written, which you felt were unconnected. Yeah. It was something which I thought of um when i was reading it and is that you've written these two george gorsky mm-hmm. novels and you know you've written these two standalone novels and i'm a big fan of ian m and brackets oh, yeah. bank so you know did his yeah. fiction and his sci-fi was split yeah. in that way but it sounds as though you don't see that kind of definition it's it's simply a case of you writing whatever you want to write at the time and actually mm. there are like banks as well there are threads mm. and there are things that uh-huh. run through both 
I mean, yeah, I mean, I absolutely just want to write whatever I want. Um, uh, I wouldn't want to create a discrete persona for those Degorsky books, which are, you know, they are crime novels. Yeah. Maybe not wholly conventional crime novels, but um, no, I, I see I see a continuum between uh, all of that stuff, even although they are they are oh you know superficially different i mean his bloody project is superficially incredibly uh, different from case study but structurally and in terms of the way the material is presented there's you know some very striking similarities yeah um and equally you know the my character in this book my protagonist you know i see her um as being very similar to um, Manfred Bauman and yeah. uh, you know the experience of Adele Wado, you know, and all all my books feature sort of episodes of sort of teenage uh, angst. You know, um, there's a sort of there's an episode in this book where um, Rebecca Smith, we could say, re- relates a story of her own sort of teenage years and sort of early sexual fumbling experience mm-hmm. that, that seems to crop up quite a lot um, <laughs> uh, so you know it's just funny the things you find yourself returning to yeah because uh, I think in all your books there, there's always someone who is struggling maybe in fact almost every character but yeah. is struggling with who they are and, and you know have a, a, a crisis of self at some point yeah I mean maybe that's just what all characters in novels do yeah I mean, maybe they do um, maybe they do uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, there's the common thread, maybe you know, appear, making yourself appear to be someone other than you actually are, mm-hmm. um, and that can as a response to feeling that you don't fit into the world yeah. very comfortably. So if you don't fit in comfortably, it's, it can be more comfortable to be be somebody else. So my character. Um, she she has a lot more fun being Rebecca Smith than she does being herself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that's uh, yeah, that's quite interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor <laughs> Doctor Braidwood. <laughs> should be lying prone for this. Uh, session. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's talk about the structure of the book because mm. it's interesting. You do have the notebooks, as you say, which is the centerpiece, but you have a chapter from a, a Braithwood book. Mm-hmm. Um, you have your own. Uh, introduction and inspection at the end as well. Mm-hmm. And now I've asked you this before, and you said, "Well, you're, you're not deliberately playing with readers." <laughs> I have to say, I think readers enjoy being played with. If you, yeah. you know, they enjoy that kind of thing. But there, there is an act. You must realise there's an aspect of that. The one that caught me this time was when you see two note pages of the notebook are missing. Yeah. In in the middle. Uh-huh. But is that just something that you're looking at a different way of telling a story? Um, I honestly wouldn't say I'm looking at a different way of telling a story because, you know, this is what this is how novels have been written since the nineteenth century. You know, I mean, I I'm never ever I would never strive for originality for its own sake. Yeah. I think that's a very sort of superficial aspiration. All I'm doing is using the means available to a novelist to tell the story. And you know, there, there's nothing in any of my books you won't find in. Robert Louis Stevenson or James Hogg, yeah, uh, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or Wilkie Collins, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, with the notebooks, I mean, I, and I think, I think, um, I felt that you know, as as you know, describing earlier these accounts that I was reading of, um, you know, sort of therapeutic relationships, you know, my character had to be writing down her experiences and. Um, you know, she begins by saying, I've decided to write down everything that happens. Um, just as Roddy McRae begins by saying, mm-hmm. um, he has been asked to write down, a, you know, an account by his advocate, Mr. Sinclair. So they're both self-consciously narrating their own stories. Um, I don't know. I don't know why that appeals to me other than the fact that I I don't want to just be inside the head of a character. I'm always like, how 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 do we as a reader get get? Mm-hmm. How do we have access to this material? So even once I've decided that there's going to be five note the notebooks, um, 
I'm then like, well, if I was reading this, I'd be like, well, how did you get hold of these notebooks? <laughs> so then I have to have an explanation of that. Right. Um, so it kind of worked that way around. Um, you know, did I find them in a, in a skip? Um, like, as a recent notebook... Um, I don't even know if that is um, the, the book where some notebooks were found in a skip. I don't even know if that's real or... Um, well, that, that reminds me of the Hitler diaries, which proved yeah. to be a fake. Well, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was actually a novel I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, it's just... Uh, I, I, I want to tell the story in what seems like the most appropriate way. And I, I think I really like to mix different accounts of the same events which isn't not so much what I'm doing here but um what I wanted was as we as we read through the book and we have the the contemporaneous notebooks of the of the young women and but we learn more about um Collins Braithwaite as as we go through the book and as as you've alluded you know we we learn that Collins Braithwaite is you know pretty sort of monstrous yeah you know, whether dangerous, we don't know, but we know more about Collins Braithwaite than than our, our protagonist does. So I think that when she sort of continues to go back to see him, we might feel differently about those encounters than just what she's describing to us. Um, and also, you know, um, I describe Collins Braithwaite's life, but I also describe, you know, what he wrote about and... Um, so I, to some extent, I, I, I would hope that that kind of meshes with the experiences that she's having, and mm -hmm. the, there's a kind of be a kind of sort of syncopated sort of thing going on there, where the two the two strands of the novel connect to each other and make you um, reflect differently than if you had merely read the notebooks. It goes back to that idea that we spoke about at the beginning about storytelling hmm. and you're getting, you're almost getting the third version of the story, aren't you, which is our projecting yeah. what we think about. Well, that's the most important bit, you know, what, what, what the reader yeah. thinks. You yeah. Know. But yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, the whole sort of playing with the reader, I'm, I'm, I, I know that this is something I get sort of accused and it's of. not an accusation. I know, I know, <laughs> I know but and people, people actually don't believe me that I'm not deliberately doing it uh, or I do believe that you're not deliberately doing yeah. it but I just think yeah. there's and it's maybe almost um, it's it's the expectations of the reader almost yeah. I mean, they maybe expect that yeah. there's going to be some slight effect. I mean what I mean I, I remember being in Bloody Scotland a few years ago and I was listening to uh, a, a writer discussing how he constructed his plots and I'm not telling this story in order to denigrate this way of writing but he said, I try to imagine what the reader uh, will think at any point, and then I'd go in the opposite direction. I mean, so that's the way he works, mm -hmm. and that is absolutely fine. For me, it's horrifying. <laughs> uh, because it feels to me completely inauthentic. Yeah. Um, because I only will follow um, where the... where I don't know what's going to happen. You know, when when in the first notebook, you know, Rebecca Smith, I'm making air quotes yes, there, yes. Um, goes off, you know, she, you know, meets this young man. That begins with her asking directions. Everything that ensues from that, I had no idea would happen. Um, so I'm just following, and then so something happens, and then some because of that, something else happens. And people quite often, when when they're reading the drafts and stuff, they say, they say, uh, very often to me. I, I've no idea where you're going with this, Graham. And the reason I think, I mean, it's not, I don't, I don't, it's not necessarily a compliment, but it's because I don't know where I'm going. And yeah. so I'm not, I'm never uh, manipulatively playing with the reader. I'm trying, I'm going where it takes me. And, you know, the strand um, of the story relating, you know, the life of Collins Braithwaite, I had absolutely no idea how that would end up. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it come, you know, it came as some sort of surprise to me that I ended up, you know, it ends up the way it does. Uh -huh. um, but it's really deeply satisfying to me. Um, so it, do you, is that why you do reference, you know, uh, real people in the books, and or in the, particularly in this book, it, it kind of keeps it in a, in a, in 
a reality, and all, you know, they said, well, did they, was there a Collins Braithwaite? Did he know R.D. Lang? You know, yeah, yeah, these yeah. kind of questions. That uh, come yeah, up. I mean, that is, that, that is, I think, and that is, well, the, the, you know, the thing is, if, if Collins Braithwaite had existed, um, he would have encountered those people and, you know, he would have gone to the Roundhouse for that famous event in 1967 yeah. where Allen Ginsberg wrote Red Howl and, you know, everybody who was Monica Vitti, or Vitti was there. Mm -hmm. And he would, Braithwaite would have been there. Collins Braithwaite, you know, would have been drinking in bars and um, in, in Soho and would have met these kind of characters because he's a very bold character he's, yeah. he would go up and talk to people you know he would expect them to come up and talk to him actually you know yeah. you know he's, he's an absolute you know alpha male beast you know yeah. terrifying um so but yeah as i say i think meshing meshing my character into the canvas that we already know uh, from that period of history you know does it's like it's a bit like um Woody Allen's film Zelig, where yes. Zelig turns up in all these sort of tableaus from history, um, and you know, it's, um, there, I th you know, again, it's I don't think there's anything particularly unusual about having, you know, real, real people having a walk-on part. I don't know. You probably read a lot more novels. Than me. <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to think. It, it's yeah. not. I, I guess it it happens in some and it doesn't yeah. in others. And but I just think. Um, there's a kind of blurring of lines somewhere yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a total blurring of lines and I think it also goes for because I, when I write about Collins Braithwaite, I write about him in the style of a literary journalism or literary yeah. biography. And when you use that kind of style, it signifies to the reader that what you're writing about is true in a way that writing in a novelistic style doesn't so you're using those techniques to create an illusion of reality you know just as a documentary a film if a filmmaker um, uses a, a shaky camera it signifies reality um, and in a way the sort of literary journalistic style I use or, or say using the occasional foot, footnote signifies the existence of these events outside the text um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's um, you know I I think people will Google Collins Braithwaite. Yeah, I'm sure of it. I'm <laughs> I mean, sure you mean you didn't? Yes. I know. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's when I did book groups and stuff for his bloody project. I mean, almost always the first question I was asked was, "Was did this really happen?" Yeah. I think um, I must be getting used to your writing now because I didn't yeah. Google Collins Braithwaite, but yeah. what I did do because yeah. you mentioned a keep the girl book. <laughs> briefly, and I, that took me back to um, studying philosophy. And I went, I've read that. Right. That's written. He wrote that with a pseudonym. I'm fairly sure he did. Did he really? Yeah. Oh my god! If only <laughs> I'd known that. That's so cool. And I was sure you would have known that, and no. that's why. So I was given it bigger meaning than that. Right. Well, that is fascinating. Do, do you know why? Uh, no, I'd have to check it out. Because uh, Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, is such a cool name. Yeah. But wouldn't it be cool if we found out that wasn't his real name and the other name Everything was actually was the real one? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm now dating myself. I'm going to have to check yeah. that out. But I'm fairly sure that was the case. Yeah. And I was thinking, oh, this must lead into, you know, the authority. Well, well the author. and, you know, it's a book about the self. It, yes, well, yeah, it is. So. Yeah, like, and that's what the Kierkegaard book is about, which I mm. can see why it was mentioned. But yeah. then I was looking for... Deeper meaning. That's well, what you do. <laughs> yeah, but that's but, that, but the thing is, that the the deeper meaning is neither there nor not there. Yes. It's a matter of the interpretation of the reader. Yeah. And you know, so you know, most people haven't read Kierkegaard. I mean, and I've read very little Kierkegaard. Mm. Um, you having read more Kierkegaard, latch onto that and create meanings out, out of your relationship with the text. That meaning is therefore exists. It's not that it's not valid because it's not what no, no, I intend. You're you absolutely and right. that is like, this is this goes to the heart for me of how, how you know you know how why I like to create these texts in which there is space for the reader, and that is you know very often or one way of doing that I think is by having different accounts of the same thing or or accounts in which some doubt begins to exist about whether what you're being told is true or even if you agree with the version of events you've been given and um, 
you know, I do, you know, you, 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 when you do author events, which is a kind of contradiction for me, because yeah. I am an advocate of the death of the author, you know. Yes, I know. And, uh, but the death of the author is the liberation of the reader. Yeah. And the, 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 the reader's uh, right to interpret the text as they see fit and for that interpretation to be valid doesn't need to be validated by being tested against the intentions of the author. Yeah. You know. But it is interesting, I think, because perhaps as much as at any time, the kind of, not the cult of the author, that's taking mm. it too mm. far, but you're doing events and you're doing, yeah. and people are asking you questions and often probably expecting answers where sometimes I think you would rather go, well, it's in the book. Well, no, but I do, I do, I, but I do get asked um, for the answers and I never answer. I mean, and I know, I, I say, I, mean, I know you're going to be frustrated, but <laughs> this, the material is here. The material in his bloody project is here. We can have a conversation about you know what we both think but my opinion uh, as the author is of no more validity than yours yeah. as long as we're both referencing stuff that's there and I, I don't even think it's a I mean this stuff with this you know this idea has been around since the 1960s yeah no, it's no. not but it seems and I think with the whole uh, literary literary festival circuit and stuff or not um, you know you, you say the cult of the author I mean I mean, in Bart's article, he, he talks about the cult of the author and how it's, uh, you know, it anchors the text, mm -hmm. or it enchains the text. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but, you know, until even when I was a student back in the 1980s, you know, there wasn't this proliferation of um, author events, and yeah. book festivals. There were very few book festivals. I don't even think people had book launches. Yeah. So I thought I would sometimes go to a poetry reading right. in the Third Eye Centre. <laughs> um, <laughs> you were probably at some of the same ones. Um, but you know, now nowadays, as an author, you're expected mm. to also have a public persona yeah. and to take part in these events. Luckily for me, I'm a big show off, and I, <laughs> I, I really like doing. I, I genuinely like. I love I love the when we get to the point of an event where we take questions from the audience. Yeah. And, you know, it's like I find it very engaging. And I did the first event for this book just at the weekend, and it was so great to be back with an audience. Um, mm -hmm. And um, but you can do it without, um, and you can talk about the book without, you know, anchoring the meaning. And I would I always refuse to. Um, provide answers which aren't in the text. I mean, you know, with my first book, you know, I mean, well, I think all of my books are somewhat inconclusive in mm -hmm. their endings, uh, deliberately so, and, you know, particularly The Disappearance of Adele Badeau, you know, there's a sort of big question that looms over the end of yeah. the book, and then people ask me, so what actually happened there? I'm like, I, I don't know. What do you think happened? And I, I think most people want to punch me at that point. <laughs> but it's very important. But I on and also even in a sort of a kind of self-interested way, um, I think if you if you conclude everything very neatly, tie up all the loose ends, then I think person puts a book down, and it's it's kind of dead. Yeah. Um, whereas if 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 there are still open questions, um, then I think the book can linger. Um, longer in people's minds and I think with his blood project and I did I, I love book groups um, and um, you know I think the reason that the book was was quite successful within book groups because it is open to different yeah, interpretations so people can actually have a conversation about it and they can actually have very divergent views about the same characters in the book by but still without um, you know, but still based on what's in the book, and I, I never, you know, I never ever will tell the reader what to think, you know, as as the author of the book, you know, I mean, and I mean, within the writing of the book, you know, and it's a it's an old George Simenon thing, yeah. you know, uh, I'm not judging, you know, I'm trying to understand, um, and I'm I'm writing my characters from the inside, I'm trying to inhabit their world, and I'm I won't stand in judgment. Um, but from what you're saying about the way you write as well, if you are saying you didn't know where you know, characters are going and maybe you're surprised that they take that turn or they become like that, then you genuinely don't know what would have happened next because yeah. you stop just as the reader stops. No, that's absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I then reflect on what I've written. 
and um, I come to my own to some extent. I, I suppose I'm not I'm not one for sort of you know going back over stuff, but it's in a way that's the moment we're at now with this book. You know, the book will come out next week, um, so at this point, I'm only of course um, you know I have a couple of friends who read my my drafts, not many. I mean, you know, I'm not one. And then you have your agent and your publisher and your editor. Um, but you don't really, you don't know what people are going to make of the book at, at this point. And it's only once people start asking you questions or critics might write something, people like yourself, you know, <laughs> start in uh, feeding versions of the book back to you that you, you see what the book is doing out, yeah. out in the world. Um, at this point, you don't know. I don't really know how people will react to the characters. I assume, of course, I always assume they'll react exactly as I react, but that's not the case. I mean, I remember yeah. with Manfred Bauman, and I wrote this character. He's, you know, an exaggerated version of myself to, in some ways, um, but he's also quite, quite creepy in his um, some of the some of his actions. But I had only ever been inside Manfred Bauman's head. I never really thought about him, you know, how he might appear to an outsider. And I remember a friend saying, oh my God, that Manfred Bauman, he's such a creep. <laughs> I was like, I actually felt really offended. I was like, they'd insulted me. Um, well, that was kind of uh, where I was hedging my, <laughs> or, or being mealy with my words about Collins Braithwaite, because I didn't uh, want to say, yeah. well, actually, I think he's a smashing fellow. But no, but, yeah, because, yeah, well, I suppose that's, but, yeah, you don't know, you know, people may think Collins Braithwaite is a version of me. Collins Braithwaite, just for the record, is not <laughs> a version of I me. And, I, you know, I felt, you know, he is this sort of monstrous, you know, massively large in life character. Yeah. And that's why he was kind of, he's, he's just a big lion beast mm. um, and uh, but I think I think you know maybe that's the difference as well between the first novel and the fourth novel you, maybe you move away a little bit more from characters you know he is an invent an invention um, but you know I think I hope that I manage somehow to invest him with some I mean, in, in his bloody project, the villain is um, Lachlan Broad, mm -hmm. Lachlan McKenzie. And we know he's he's the murder victim, um, we, we know from the beginning. And we only ever see him from Roddy McRae's point of view. So yeah. Lach, Lachlan McKenzie is never invested with any in our life. We don't get any insight into why he might be behaving the way he does. We can speculate about it if we want, but it's not in the book. Um, because of the constraints placed on the way the book's narrated, mm -hmm. which I will never break. Yeah. Um, whereas in this book, because we both have, we have the view from the other side of the office, from the young woman, and we have my biographical account. So, um, you know, I, I, I think as I wrote the character, you know, he became more complex to me. Yeah. And I, I began to maybe think, oh, well, then maybe this is why. Yeah. He's behaving like this, um, but that's just, that's me reflecting kind of afterwards, and that's for a reader to. Um, I think he's a character who will provoke a strong reaction. Uh, yeah, and I'm um, interested. I think that's right because, you know, he is charismatic, and I think that's a difficult thing to pull off. You understand. You can you can be bored by his actions. Hmm. You can almost understand where he's coming from and why it is and any changes and you know there's yeah. a but again that's me reading well, that's, so, I'm that's now I'm on the yeah, couch absolutely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm totally fascinated I've said that. too much yeah, yeah. I've said yeah. too much yeah. so, so when you get responses um, start getting responses to the book are you ever surprised by what people think about it or does it matter I, mean, I guess with um, his bloody project, which you know so many people have read and commented on, and I'm sure spoken to you about, has that changed the way you think about the book, or does that never happen? It's just that other people have a different uh, idea. I think with his bloody project, because it was, you know, I mean, I think we can call it a success. I think we can call it. A success, um, yeah. I think the thing that uh, made me think about the book differently was, you know, when. I was abroad and people, you know, it's like, and it's incredible to be translated and go to festivals abroad and people, you know, I went to 
Korea, you know, I've been to India, I've been to Russia, um, you know, because of this book, you yeah. know, Australia, America, Estonia. I mean, it's, it's, I say that because I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because, you know, it's a book about a village in Scotland yeah. in 1869. And at no point in the two and a half years it took me to write it, at no point did I ever think about whether it would be of any interest to anybody outside a village in Scotland. You didn't think you'd uh, get a world tour out uh, of it. And then, then you, you you go and talk to people in Russia and they find some parallels with it in, you know, Russian serfdom and the feudal system mm -hmm. of Russia or you're in China and somebody talks about the oppressive nature of Mao, the, the Maoist regime. And that remind, you're, you're like, wow, this is incredible. So, somehow people find parallels um, with with episodes in their own history uh, with a book you've written and it, it doesn't change the book it just makes me realise that the book just absolutely does not belong to me yeah, it, yeah. it goes out into the world and this is where if I if I made grand statements saying this is what the book is about then I feel that that wouldn't happen you'd be closing yeah. off uh, the possibilities that people can find in a book um, and that is like that's just like been incredible and um yeah it, it, it hasn't yeah i mean obviously that book just you know gathered a lot more comment than um uh than my other books not that you know they haven't uh you know they haven't gone completely unnoticed but doesn't i mean i i, I don't i i try very hard not to you know when i continue to write you know, I try very hard not to have these kind of thoughts of what will anybody think? How will this resonate? Mm -hmm. I, I'm, to be honest, I just, I'm capable, completely capable of not thinking about that. Yeah. You know, and I think if you start thinking about that, then you're, um, I was about to swear on your nice family podcast. You You're scuppered as yeah. a writer yeah. because I think you're no longer in, engaged in an authentic process and that might sound a bit like old school existential but I am an old existentialist you know and I want my process to be authentic and that means being inside the process yeah. and not standing outside the process wondering about what it means or how other people will um, receive it or react to it um, you know I don't think I well, I mean, I can't speak for other writers, but of course, uh, of course, I want people to like my work. Yeah. And you want people to read your work, and it does matter if people. I mean, if you know, if you know, there will be some reviews in the papers in the next week or two, and you know, if I get a really bad review, I, I'm not going to pretend that it, it won't hurt. It depends what it said. You know, yeah. the thing that if a reviewer said this book is badly written that would really hurt if they said they didn't like it for some reason yeah. um you know that that might be okay i mean i think a lot of critics and reviewers are actually really really smart mm -hmm. and um they're not i think very few reviewers if any are out to find fault with books in a malicious way um but it's not to say that your book uh, I you know I I could point to flaws in my book. I mean, I'm not going to say tell anyone else what I think they are. Um, but yeah, you know, you care, of course you care what people think. You know, I can imagine you reviewing your own book. Yeah. Well, I think there's plenty of authors who've probably been on Amazon and done it. Um, but yeah, I'd probably um, yeah make more of a thing. I'm really critical about it. I can yeah, yeah. Well, that as well. I, one of the you know I remember the the back cover of my edition of Alistair Gray's Lanark. Mm -hmm. um, or is it no? It's 1982, Janine, yeah. which describes it as an already dated novel. <laughs> uh, I'm like, I, that, I mean, even at the time, that was just like, I love, I love Alistair Gray for that, yeah. and I, I love his publisher for allowing that. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's just so cool. Um, and I don't know if I, I need to ask Saraband if I can um, describe <laughs> describe my book as being already dated. <laughs> I think Banks did something similar with the Wasp Factory. You know, this is the worst book ever written in English. Something great like wow. that. Uh -huh. and, uh, Which, you know, as his first novel is quite bold. Yeah, maybe it yeah. was only in the subsequent uh, versions. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Once, I'll, uh -huh. I'll have to check that out. Uh -huh. But certainly, there's something uh -huh. like that. Uh -huh. 
So, I mean, I guess it's too early to see what you're doing next, is it? Is it all about um, case study at the moment? Well, I mean, uh, well, I mean, it, it is in terms of like how my time's been spent. Um, it's a busy time, but you know, the book is written, and you have to move on. I mean, you spend a lot of time talking about the book, um, but you know, I'm, I'm, my plan is to write the final part of the Gorski trilogy. Um, and I'm kind of itching to get at it. Um, there's been a few little other projects sort of in the last sort of year or so. I did a thing for Radio 4, mm-hmm. um, which was an, an, a different kind of challenge. Um, but, it took, you know, everything takes me longer than that. I, I got the commission to be like, can you write five parts, about 10,000 words? I was like, no, I'll do it in a month. Yeah. I was like, what, what was I thinking, you know, <laughs> three months later? Um, but, you know, it was a challenge and it was really interesting for me listening to it go out because yeah. when an actor reads your, reads your lines, I mean, it wasn't a radio play, it was a story mm-hmm. being read out by two actors. Of course, there were two conflicting accounts, yeah. as there always are. Um, and every, every with every line, the actor is engaged in an act of interpretation, just in where they put the emphasis. So you're hearing your own sentences um, interpreted, and that that was quite. I thought they did a brilliant job. I mean, I was listening to it going, "Oh, this is really good." I, I liked it much more when I heard it than when I read it. Um, which so that was a good experience, but it, you know, takes you away from the novel writing and. Um, so yeah, that's the next that's the next plan. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I look forward to that. Yeah. Well, Graham, thank you so much for taking time to have a chat. It's always, always a pleasure. It's been a total pleasure, Alistair. Thank you for having me. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. Mm-hmm.